London is not just some city. Its spirit stands outside of time. Certain places have influenced its citizens. It is not only a setting, but a presence, a character in various films, novels and poems. My name is Philip Röttgers and I search for London's spirit. I think there are two particular ways to explore the powerful and mysterious place that is London, through literature and through walking. Follow me into a secret world. Follow me to London beyond time and place. In this series I will explore its spirit by walking the city and talking to London enthusiasts. I invite you to join me. Together we will discover London beyond time and place. This is Talks Beyond Time and Place. Hello everybody to Talks Beyond Time and Place. My name is Philip Röttgers and my guest today is Angela, this side, Angela Buckley, author of the historical true crime series Victorian Super Sleuth Investigates. Uh, the first book was The Real Sherlock Holmes, uh, but today we will focus a bit or more about uh, on her second book, which recounts the frantic race to stop one of Britain's most prolific murderers, Amelia Dyer. The book is called, I'm going to show it, Amelia Dyer mm. and the Baby Farm Murders. And uh, we will also talk a bit about baby farming in general, I think. We'll see. Yeah. So I'm very happy to have the author here today. Thank you very much for joining me, Angela. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, yeah, it's great to have you here. Uh, I also I already mentioned your, your first book, uh, The Real Sherlock Holmes. And as I said, this is the second one, but I know there are more. So maybe you can... Uh, we can start by you telling us a bit about about the series of books that you're writing and maybe also uh, how you how you came to be a writer maybe a bit about you uh, well i i started dabbling in um, in crime in, in victorian crime um after i started um, researching my family tree so i'm from manchester and uh, most of my ancestors were very poor they weren't all from manchester actually some came from as far away as italy and france but uh, mostly they were in manchester where i grew up and um, when I started investigating uh, my English side of the family there, I discovered that my three times great grandfather uh, ran a notorious brothel in the centre of Manchester in the 1860s. And, um, and so that's one half of that story. And then the second half is my Italian family were, were in, um, in, um, in Manchester towards the end of the, the 19th century. So they came in the 1880s. And, um, and they were part of a big Italian community. And there was a very famous local detective there called Jerome Caminada. And he's, when he started policing in 1868, he was actually, um, my, my um, ancestor, the brothel keeper's brothel was on his beat. Oh. So I kind of was really drawn into the adventures of Detective Caminada, partly because of my kind of, you know, nefarious ancestor, and also because he was very much part of my Italian community or my heritage there. And so, um, so I wrote about him, I wrote a biography about him. And then, uh, and then afterwards, I was looking for something else to do. And I looked at um, local history. So I currently live in Reading. And I discovered, um, and I, I'm not from Reading, obviously, so I haven't been, I've been here a while now. But when I first got here, I discovered that not far from where I live here in Reading, uh, one of, um, one of, Britain's most notorious serial killers 
um, had actually disposed her tiny victims in the River Thames, which is just uh, it's just literally you know 20 minutes walk away from where I live. So so that's what led me into the story uh, of Amelia Dyer. And then you decided to turn it into a series of books. When, when, uh, so this is actually the first in the series that the uh, the the Amelia Dyer one. The other one is published separately. And uh, and so since then I've added a second book, um, which is Who Killed PC Cock. And for that one I've gone back to my roots in Manchester. And uh, this was a young police officer who was killed uh, by a bullet in 1876 by an unknown burglar, um, literally just a few yards from where my family home in Old Trafford. So uh, it's a place that I know incredibly well. My parents still live there and I know all the landmarks in the story. So it was kind of a bit more of a personal journey really, to find out about PC Cock. And it's an extraordinary story because it has a huge twist. So it, I won't tell you the whole story, but it gets a, a, a guy, William Havron, gets convicted of um, PC Cock's murder and sentenced to death. And then three years later, there's this extraordinary twist, uh, which you know happens in real life uh, more than you think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, so I'm going to have to read that one. I haven't yet. I have to confess, but now, now I'm I'm going to have to read it. Now I want to know. I want to know the story. And the I'm not going to tell you what you know. I'm not. No spoilers. spoilers. <laughs> okay, so yeah, as you just said, um, Angela, you not not far from where you live. Uh, the uh, yeah, Amelia Dyer. I, I'm I'm just going to read the the bit that's on the back of your book because I think it's okay. very kind of it sets the atmosphere of of what what happened there. So on uh, the 30th of March, not not far from now actually, <laughs> 30th of March 1896, a bargeman hooked a parcel from the River Thames at Caversham, and inside the brown package was the body of a baby girl. She had been strangled with tape. So this is the also the opening scene of the of your book i think it's very suspenseful even if if one knows the case and knows how yes. it, how it ends but i was really you know I, i really wanted to know okay how how did it develop from there when did they did they stumble upon uh, amelia dyer how did they did they trace her so maybe yeah maybe you can tell us a bit what happened from there on and maybe also how how you uh, stumbled upon this very story once you were you you happened to be in, in reading so, well, I started researching the story from the perspective of Reading, because the story actually starts in Bristol 30 years before. But for me, what was most interesting was um, how the events unfolded here in Reading and, uh, and, and the reaction of the local residents to it. So that's where I start. So you're absolutely right. On the 30th of March, 1896, um, this bargeman who's, who's coming up the Thames, to Thames, the Thames was a really busy waterway at the time with lots of businesses and lots of coming and going of traffic, boat traffic. And he sees a barge and him and his mate um, reach, they move the barge over to where the package is and, uh, and they drag the package through the water with a hook. And then when they open the package in the barge, they discover to their horror, a tiny foot. Um, and they realize that this is actually, unfortunately, uh, a baby. So they take the um, package to the local police station, which is literally 15 minutes walk. It's all of the all of the places in the story still exist in Reading. So, I wanted uh, to you, ask you that. Yeah, yeah it's really, really atmospheric. So they took uh, the package, went to the mortuary, and when they opened it, they discovered the body of a baby girl aged between six and 12 months old. Um, she didn't have any clothes on. She'd been wrapped in newspaper and linen and then in brown paper parcel uh, tied with string. And she'd been strangled because she had some white tape uh, around her neck. So this was a horrific discovery. I mean, to be fair, there were lots of there were lots of children, bodies of children or babies discovered in the Thames 
you know, along through that period. But this was particularly horrific, and it was clear that she'd met a violent death. Now, in fact, funnily enough, as a slight aside, the package was actually discovered in the loft of one of the investigating officer's descendants in 2017. So uh, you can find it online if you look, you know, that's that's quite extraordinary. So and the package is key to the beginning of the investigation because when they dried it out, they discovered that they had a faint address on the, on the package. And it said, uh, Mrs. Thomas, 26 Piggott's Road, which is in Caversham, quite close to the river. So they went, the police went round to Piggott's Road to try and find out who Mrs. Thomas was. And they discovered that she'd gone and there was nobody there at that address. So one of the investigating officers, Detective Constable James Anderson, had this brilliant idea to take the package to the railway station, Reading Railway Station, to see if there's any, any, there was any information about it, because the package also had a Midland Railway stamp on and a date, which was the 25th of October 1895, and it had come through Bristol Temples Meads Railway Station to Reading. So it must have been logged, you know, it must have been logged somewhere. So a clerk at Rail Reading Railway Station told the police that, in fact, the package belonged to a Mrs. Dyer, her name wasn't Thomas, and that she'd since moved to 45 Kensington Road, which was a property, as like with the others, it still exists on the other side of Reading. And that's how the investigation started. You just said that the, um, the sites still exist. So... Um... So if you've been there, obviously, I think you have. So, so I have um, many times, and I do. Uh, I do take crime walks sometimes around there. So the river has hardly changed. Um, the bridge where where some of the rest of the story unfolds has been replaced, but the walkway is still there. It's incredibly atmospheric. All the paths are the same as they were in 1896. And there's two properties on the side of the river um, by Caversham Lock that's, that still have people in. They still, you know, still addresses. I've, I've been contacted by residents sometimes as well. Um, I don't tend to go in. If I take a tour group, I kind of just, I just very casually mention it. I don't like to stand outside and and, and gawp. Uh, and also the other property, Kensington Road, is still there. So, and the police station building, that's not a police station anymore. I think it's a solicitor's company. But it's so, so it's, it's, uh, it's really fascinating to walk around and see all these places where this drama uh, takes place. I can imagine. If, if I ever get to, to, to Reading, which I will, then I'm going to have to take a tour with you and you're, you're going to have to yes. show me all the sites because now I'm hooked. <laughs> the last time I did it, I was um, telling the story about the package by the towpath and uh, to a group of people in quite a loud voice. And just on the river, just next to me, there were some people in a boat drinking champagne. <laughs> you know, and I'm telling this terrible, gruesome story. It was quite amusing. <laughs> would have been would have been I'm, I'm still waiting for the day where you would do a tour like that and suddenly all of a sudden just you know a package would flow down the river just yes, an empty package yes. but it would be like oh my god what is that so, i have yeah. done it with ghost hunters actually uh, to get some data for, for them we didn't actually do the ghost hunting but we did it and that was quite strange actually uh, you know i'm not sure i'd be going back with them at the dead of night to uh, try and find amelia dyer's ghost but um yeah it was interesting maybe not i i did find a ghost story about her but that's that, that's london based i'm gonna mention that later because it's okay. it's uh, at the end of her of her of her life uh, maybe you've heard about it maybe you haven't we'll see so mm -hmm. I imagine one thing before we go on with the story a bit. Um, sure. When you when you write such a book, um, I think you must sometimes feel, well, yeah, horrified when you when you describe the way of of, of killing of you know the way these these babies yeah. or these these infants were were killed. So uh, is it is it difficult to to um, 
to separate that to, to just see it professional or does it touch you personally also very much? Um, yeah, I, I don't enjoy actually talking about Amelia Dyer, even though I give, you know, numerous talks and, you know, do all sorts of work around it. It's not something I, I love. I mean, I obviously I love the investigation and I, I, I really enjoy working out how the how the police detectives solved the case. That's my kind of real interest. I enjoy the social history because I think um, I've done some more work, work since on baby farming. I find it quite interesting about, you know, who were these women who did this? You know, what were their, you know, the victims in terms of the mothers who gave their children and what were they like? What was their background? So I enjoy that. I don't really enjoy the, the you know, the, the horror of it, particularly. Some, some people, you know, quite enjoy that aspect of true crime. It's not really for me. And, you know, I, I have children. I mean, they've, they've, they've survived. They're, they're grown ups now. But, you know, I used to take my children when they were very small down to the river, you know, where Daya put her victims. So I do find the story incredibly sad. Um, and often, uh, you know, if I see things in the news today about about children, you know, being being um, oh, obviously it affects us all. But, you know, I can't if, if you if you read in today in the news about babies being abandoned or or, um, you know, children being abused, it does affect me. And I, you know, have to kind of separate that from these historic stories. Um, but I also think it's important to tell, you know, to tell the truth about the past and also particularly with the victims. I've done more work on the victims of this since, and actually to tell their stories is, 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 is also as important, you know, rather than just talk about the perpetrators. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, that's the, what you just said, that's the thing with, uh, with true crime. You know, it's more about the social history, or at least what's also what, what interests me, but I know there are quite a lot of people, or some people who are interested really in the, in the, the, the act of killing and what happened, which I think is very, very odd, very, very gruesome. That's not, that's not what it's about. It's about the history, the social history, and of course, also the victims. So uh, yeah, of course, this is also about the victims and not just about Amelia Dyer, uh, what we're talking about now. Yeah, and so, I've seen, yeah. I mean, I have the photographs of those two, of the two key babies in this case that are on, they're on public display at the Thames Valley Police Museum. But, you know, I often look at those photographs. They're not gruesome. They're just literally, you know, they just look peaceful. Right. But I, yeah. You know, I often find that quite upsetting. In fact, I was at the National Archives just last week looking at some other baby farming stories. And as I went, I just, it was just some random pile of stuff from uh, Metropolitan Police files. And as I got to the bottom of one of the piles, it's a different story, this one, but, um, and I haven't researched it very well yet, but there was a piece of card turned downwards, if you sort of turn, turn, turn side down. So I could just see the back of it. It didn't have anything written on the back and it was the last piece in the stack. And when I turned it over, it was a beautiful picture of a, a rather ghostly picture of a small girl, um, just, just like a portrait picture. Mm -hmm. um, she was alive at the time and I knew that she was the victim. And it's, it's moments like that where she's just lost in that pile of yeah. documents with no name on. I know who she is, but there was no name on it. It was obviously just a studio portrait that maybe the parents had given to the police. And there she was, you know, just just hiding there, you know, for a, for a century. So, so those are the kind of things that, you know, so I want to, I haven't done it yet, but, you know, I want to know more about her, you know, who was this child, you know, who were her parents? So, so that's what, that's what inspires me. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it will be, it will be interesting when you, uh, when you re um, return to that research to, to what's, to find out more about her and, and uh, yeah. yeah, all these, these people and all the, all the victims, uh, unfortunately. Yeah. So as you mentioned, um, a faint name and address uh, on the sudden wrapping provided Reading police with their first clue. So when did they did they stumble upon uh, Amelia Dyer? How did she enter the story? 
So they went round to Amelia Dyer's known address at 45 Kensington Road quite soon after. It was actually on the 1st of April. But when they got there, they discovered that she was absent, um, which wasn't particularly helpful. She'd been away for the weekend. Um, it was actually Good Friday. It was Easter weekend. So they arranged a sting operation. Um, they, they arranged to go back on the 3rd of April when they hoped that she'd be home. But instead of the police going themselves, they sent a decoy. Now, there were no female police officers in 1896 at all. So they arranged, presumably, for one of the uh, police officers' wives to go around in the morning and to uh, make an arrangement to meet Amelia Dyer that evening on the pretext of her, of her wanting to have her baby adopted. So they already knew that Amelia Dyer was a baby farmer or they had suspicions that she was a baby farmer. Um, so that was why they kind of did it in this particular way. And then when on, on, the, on the, the 3rd of April in the evening, when uh, Amelia Dyer opened the door, so there was a knock on the door, when she opened the door, she actually found um, two police officers on her doorstep instead of the woman that she had expected to meet. So they entered her property at 45 Kensington Road. They questioned her, but she didn't say a great deal, but they had a search around the, the house and they found evidence of baby farming. So they found lots of infants clothing uh, drying out on the rack by the fire. They found pawn tickets um, so for, for baby's clothing where Amelia had taken baby's clothing to pawnbrokers, you know, for money. They found um, letters from parents and vaccination certificates. Now, there were a couple of babies in the property and some children uh, as well. And, you know, there, there were quite a few people in the property. But also the officers um, went upstairs and they discovered a rather horrible smell. And they kind of literally followed the smell to a closet in the bedroom where they found a locked um, tin box. And when they, they, they had Amelia open the box, and th there's no police reports of this, so I'm only going on the newspapers, but the newspapers at the time said that the box bore the traces of a corpse. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you have to leave it to your imagination what might have been in that box. So they knew um, that she was a baby farmer. They also found some white tape in her work basket, you know, for sewing. So, and the, 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 the child had had, you know, this white tape around her neck. But of course, they'd still needed evidence, you know, they needed a positive identification of that child and she'd actually been in the water for almost, well, certainly two weeks at least. Um, so, you know, the body wasn't in a great state, but not to put too fine a point on it. Um, so they started collecting evidence then and their first, their first kind of clue in the chain of evidence was to look at the letters from the parents that they found in the property at 45 Kensington Road to try and work out how many children there were who, the ch who this child was and who other children might be. And then to try to get to a situation where the par some parents could come and identify a body, uh, because obviously without forensics, you know, they would have had no way of identifying a child just washed up in the water. Um, and that's what they needed to kind of, to start to build a case against her. Yeah, yeah. And I think, uh, I mean, when they discovered who, who they, they had there and, and how long this has been going on, you know, they, they uncovered quite a, a huge case. But I think um, after this first body was found in the Thames, the more bodies bodies were found. Uh, I think two, two more bodies in a carpet bag. And, and then this whole, um, yeah, this, this whole case was, was uncovered. So, so um, how did it, did it go on from, from there? And, and how many victims were there overall? Is, can can well, we, we say that? Do we know that? Yeah, we don't really know. I mean, they found... Um... So they, they, they obviously arrested Amelia Dyer and she was put into Reading Prison whilst investigations were going on and they held an inquest on that first baby. 
they kind of identified that first child as a, as a baby called Helena Fry uh, because of a letter that they found at Kensington Road. But, um, and they used that name, but there was no real way of identifying her, um, you know, because the body wasn't in a good enough state. So although there is a name attached to that first baby, it's certainly, it's not certain that that's who she was. And it certainly wasn't enough to build a case against Dyer. So they started dragging the Thames, um, so round Caversham Lock, uh, where the baby was first, the first baby was found. They got labourers to start um, dragging operations. And there were two more babies found quite soon afterwards, but they never identified those. And then on the 10th of April, so roughly a week or so later, they made this particularly horrific discovery uh, in the Thames. So as I said before, there's a bridge that goes across the Thames at that point called the Clappers Bridge. It still exists, it's just now a big iron bridge rather than a, it used to be a wooden bridge. And um, halfway across that sort of, so down, halfway across that bridge under the water, they found a carpet bag. And when they took the carpet bag out of the water, they found, uh, and again, it was wrapped, there was newspaper inside. When they removed the newspaper, they found the body of a four, roughly four month old girl. And then underneath her, they found the body of a 13 month old boy. Now this actually was a, this was a game changer because, because the police had been chasing up the parents in the letters at 45 Kensington Road, they were actually able to bring the parent of one of these children and the guardian of the other to Reading the following day on the 11th of April to make a positive identification. And these children hadn't been in the water very long. They'd probably been in there about 10 days. So, um, so it was easy to identify them. And they also were dressed. So they had, they could all, the, uh, the guardians could also identify their clothing. And one of the children, the, the little girl, was identified as four month old Doris Marmon. And her mother came to identify her. And then the boy was Harry Simmons. He was 13 months old and his guardian came to identify. He was from London or he'd come from London. Um, his guardian came to identify him. And particularly Doris, that, the, the investigation around her, that, that particular situation um, sealed the fate of Amelia Dyer and the police were able to build a case on that positive identification. There were others found in the river. Around that time, there were seven or eight children found in the river, but Doris was the one who was only securely identified. Okay. And Amelia Dyer had been doing this for 30 years in Bristol. So, you know, the, the roughly were about probably, I'm trying to work out, how how many victims there were in Reading and I reckon there's somewhere between 25 and 30 children came and went at the properties in Reading and she was only there um six months and so if she'd been doing it 30 years prior to that you we must be talking about hundreds of babies but obviously there's no way I've been I've been trying to trace some of the victims but there's you know it's a bit of a difficult task uh, absolutely yeah and it's 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 horrifying to think about the the amount of of, of babies, the, the, the huge number. So how do you know how many were, or were they able to, to identify some of them apart from, from, from the girl? Um, not really. So they, they could identify the girl and, and the boy. And there was another baby that was found in the water later on the 23rd of April. And they thought that she was a baby whose surname was Isaacs. And she'd come to Reading. She'd been brought to Reading um, in the September. And they reckoned she was four or five months old. And when they had the inquest, Interestingly, a woman read about it in the press and she stepped forward and said that the child was hers and that the, the child was called Francis Jesse Golding. Uh, but it's quite difficult to know because 
her, the age of that child differs from, from what the coroner, the age of the child that they found according to the coroner. So it's it's quite complicated. And there's a, you know, there's a whole thing about the baby's, the baby's teeth, you know, but did the teeth belong to the baby and, and what she was wearing. So it, it seems likely that that was Francis Jesse Golding, even though there are discrepancies, but no, the rest, and, and that's it. So, so none of the others were identified. I mean, mm. Amelia Dyer had stood trial in, in Bristol in 1879 in the, in, in, uh, after the inquest into four children who were identified at the inquest when they, they basically um, died of malnutrition or um, associated illnesses like diarrhea and uh, you know, uh, infections and they were in her care at the time. But she didn't, she wasn't, um, she wasn't convicted from that. She was convicted for identifying a death certificate, uh, for falsifying an um, a death certificate. But the problem was, is that, um, well, the main problem with identification as well as lack of forensics was that Amelia Dyer would use, would change the names of babies and she would sometimes claim them to be her own and she would falsify birth and death certificates. So there's a, there's a small child that's buried quite close to here where I am now in Emma Green, um, a bit further away from the river. And it's a tiny graveyard that's just at the back of the school. And I went there recently to have a look. There's no marker. And there's, um, I found the death certificate for one of the victims there for that, that cemetery. And on the de death certificate, the child is called Ina Clara Palmer. And Palmer is actually um, Daya's daughter, married daughter's name. And so they, they claimed her as their own. Um, she wasted away, like many of these children did, probably due to malnutrition, being, being starved. And they buried her under their name. She clearly wasn't their child, but there's no, no idea who that child actually was. And she's, you know, she's, she's in an, an unmarked grave, you know, in this tiny church, tiny graveyard just hidden away. So that's the problem is it's very hard. The paper trail is very difficult to follow. Absolutely, yeah. So um, when, when, when we hear that you, we, we think she, she must have been, I mean, Amelia Dyer must have been very, very reckless, very brutal. No, she, she obviously she didn't seem to have a problem with what she was doing. So um, maybe we, we can uh, expand a bit and, and uh, you, maybe you can tell us a bit about uh, baby farming in general. So what was this yeah. business like? And, and uh, yeah, maybe, maybe just a bit about baby farming. Sure. So um, baby farming was really a form of Victorian childcare and um, it dates, I've seen evidence of it from the 1840s in the industrialised cities, uh, London, Manchester. And it wasn't just for single parents. If you were a working parent, you could put your child in with a baby farmer on a weekly basis. You know, so in Manchester particularly, there are stories or accounts of women um, placing their baby with a baby farmer during the day, going to the factory to work, collecting their baby in the evening. So it is like childcare. Now, by the 1860s, there starts to become an awareness of the rather nefarious side of baby farming. And it's the, the term baby farm is coined in the 1860s and 70s. And this is it starts in London with various various social commentators uh, worry, worrying and reformers worrying about the, the number of illegitimate children who are placed with baby farmers for adoption and for fostering for a fee. So basically what would happen is that a baby farmer would advertise in the local press for a baby to foster or adopt. If you were fostering and, or on a weekly basis, it would cost about five shillings a week. If you were having a child adopted, it could be as much as £10 for the full adoption. And basically these would the baby farmers would advertise for children wanted for a loving couple in a beautiful home, you know, in a church, God-fearing, God-fearing, you know, family, bring mm -hmm. up the child in church, educate their, 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 um, their the child and, and provide them with the things that the parents couldn't provide. 
and the victims were often the illegitimate children of unmarried women because there was such a stigma still attached to having an illegitimate child these women were, were just desperate because uh, often their families would shun them. Um, many of them were domestic servants, not all, but if they found themselves pregnant, you know, whilst they were working, they would lose their job, mm -hmm. they would lose their home, and they would have no income, and there was nobody to look after them. They could go into the workhouse, but that was to be, you know, that was a last option for anybody. Um, so, so often the, the, the victims were domestic servants or certainly unmarried women who would see these adverts and they would apply to the baby farmer to have their child adopted. And after that, usually there was a correspondence by letter and then they would arrange to meet. And then if they wanted to go ahead with the adoption, the parent would, would give the child over, usually with boxes of clothing, you know, for them to, for the child to, to have, and they would pay this fee. Uh, the fee is, a, is, is just under an annual wage for a domestic servant. So it was a huge fee. So it, would, mm -hmm. it was a very lucrative business. And they wouldn't have heard from again. Now, it's also important to say that in, in England and Wales, certainly, this was completely legal at the time because there was no legislation preventing you from transferring the guardianship of your child from one person to another. So effectively, you could sell your children in this way because there was nothing to stop you. Of course, it's the baby farming that leads to um, child protection regulation. But at the time, it was possible to do. Now, the, there were baby farmers who were decent people. They weren't always women, but many of them were women. But there were also some who were not. And they basically would just allow these poor children to starve to death. They wouldn't feed them properly. Um, they would just they would give them drugs, give them feed them opiates to keep them quiet. Now, this wasn't common with parents because parents, everybody took laudanum and opiates in the Victorian period. And parents did used to give um, their children um, opiate-based salute, you know, tonics mm -hmm. to keep them quiet. So it wasn't uncommon. But the baby farmers took that one step further, and they would basically drug these children to stop them from crying. And those children would gradually waste away. And that was called um, by the medical term called marasmus. And in fact, you know, many of us in our family history, we find children in our own family tree who died of marasmus. And it's basically just a failure to thrive, usually due to poor diet. You know, if the mother's got a poor diet and she's breastfeeding, which, of course, most of them did, a child would just not, you know, infections and illness and diarrhea. And that's what these babies died of. Now, Amelia Dyer is one of the few baby farmers who took it one step further and strangled some of the later children in her care. So it's a really sad story, really, about baby farming. But that's basically what, what it is. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. But I think she wasn't the only one who... Uh who took things further, right? I mean, there were other cases where, yeah, where baby farmers would, would kill the, the children and uh, just to, to take the money. So, um, yeah, I think there were other cases, weren't there? There were seven cases um, between 1870 and 1907 in, in uh, Great Britain uh, and where baby farmers were, were uh, convicted of, of, of murder. Uh, there yeah. might have been many more, but, but they were, you know, they're, they're, they're the key cases. Yeah. What I found interesting is, I mean, obviously this wasn't only, uh, just a British thing because we have quite a famous, uh, uh, yeah, a similar case in, in, in Hamburg, in Hamburg here in Germany from 1905. Uh, and the, the, the woman was called Elisabeth Wiese, Elisabeth Wiese. And uh, she was, uh, she, they, they called her the Hamburg Engelmacherin, the angel maker of, of Hamburg. Ah, interesting, yeah. And um, she was, convicted and executed for, for the killing of five children. 
and okay. she uh, she did the same thing ba baby farming basically and there are quite a few parallels i think to the Emilia dyer case uh, and she also drowned some of the ch uh, children in the in the elbe in in the river uh, and i think she even put some of them into the oven but i'm not quite sure so uh, yeah. sorry that's really interesting I and mean, i've read yeah. cases in other places certainly there were others in other european countries and in yeah. australia but um that's really interesting yeah but uh I remember I, I did a tour. I, I was on uh, when I was in Hamburg the last time. I did a tour to, with with a tour guide walking around, and he told us about this story. And then when I read this book, I mean, I knew I knew about, about Emilia Dyer, but then I thought, hang on, there was there was a similar case in Germany, and then I, mm. I looked that up. So um, yeah, what I, what I often wonder, I mean, as you said, there were quite a few people living with uh, Emilia Dyer in the household, or at least in the house she had a. a she also rented rooms, I believe, and then there was Granny, uh, right? I, I forgot her name. Sorry, Smith. Jane Smith. Yeah, right. Jane Smith. And, and yeah. Jane Smith, and and two children, two, uh, you know, uh, two two older children, Willie, I think, who was nine, and yes, sorry, I forgot right. the other one, the the girl. Nellie Oliver. So Nellie Oliver was eleven, and Willie Thornton was nine. That's right. And they and came to be looked after in in Reading. They were both reunited with their with their parents, and after. After she was yeah, we don't. It's, I've, I've tried to find them, and it's very hard to. I, I, the newspapers said they were. I haven't been able to find any evidence of them being reunited, but you know that that's what the newspaper said. I mean, she was very. Amelia Dyer was an interesting, a very complex character, and very interesting because she developed a very strong bond with Willie Thornton. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. on the one hand, these children may have been decoys because baby farmers use decoy children, mm -hmm. so that if the authorities came, it looked like they were you know keeping children healthy, and they would use older children for that. But she was very close to Willie, and he was very close to her he called her mother um you know uh, when she was in prison in reading jail she was often often asked about willie and how he was getting on but it was his carpet bag that he brought it's quite sinister his carpet bag that he brought his belongings in was the carpet bag which was found in the river thames um but yeah it's interesting that she could develop a strong relationship with some children and then uh, and dispose quite happily not happily but easily perhaps and there's no evidence to the contrary um, of, of others. Um, very yeah. interesting. I often wonder, um, but I think yeah, it's it, it was they dealt with that in during the case and during uh, um, uh, yeah when when they were caught. But did didn't you know like did Granny never notice that something weird was going on, or maybe the other children didn't they think? I mean, obviously they realized that many of mm. the babies that came into the house were quickly they 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 were yeah, gone yeah. but didn't they ever suspect Amelia Dyer of you know killing these children or not not Jane Smith no so she she was an elderly woman that um, Amelia Dyer had met in the workhouse in uh, Barton Regis when she'd when things had started to go wrong in Bristol at the end of her time there she, um, Dyer had ended up in the workhouse and that's where she met Jane Smith and Jane Smith was 74 years old and she'd been in service as a servant, a domestic servant for 30 years. And then for some reason, a position, maybe she got too old or, you know, she'd, she'd been discarded from that and ended up in the workhouse. So she was quite vulnerable. And, uh, and Daya met her and she invited her to come and live with her. And did she pay her a small wage? I don't think she paid her very much. And that she came to look after the house and to care for the babies. And it's quite sad, the interviews that Jane Smith gave to the press after the crimes were uncovered are really quite sad because she didn't seem to know. She knew that babies came and went, but she but Daya told her that she was taking them to foster parents or mm -hmm. that you know she was taking them back to their parents. And, uh, and she, you know, she was, 
she was really devastated about the babies um, that, that she discovered that they died. So no, I don't think she did know. Um, there's a there's a, a there's a, a, a legend in Reading that um, that she 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 haunts the place around 45 Kensington Road, and that apparently um, she can be seen walking. There's a different workhouse, the, the the site of a different workhouse there, not the one that she was in, but she can be seen walking from the workhouse site um, to Kensington Road crying for the lost babies. I don't know when that's true, but you know, it does sum up the kind of the tragedy of Jane Smith really. And I don't Absolutely. know what happened to her afterwards, because you know, with a name like Jane Smith, she's virtually impossible to to you know to track down. Yeah. I think she she did have to go to the workhouse again, right? I think but she did, yeah. Maybe, yeah. She probably didn't live that that much longer after that if she was that old during so. that time. But who exactly. knows? Yeah. Yeah, I haven't well, checked Reading, the Reading Workhouse records actually uh, to see if she's there, but uh, yeah, that's that was the point. I don't know if they exist, but that would be a good idea. Mm. Yeah, I, I often wonder, uh, you know, what what I mean. It does get a bit. We, we do get a bit of an insight into Amelia Dyer's character, but as you said, she did this for she has had done this for for such a long time. So what what kind of character she might have been? Uh, maybe even when she started, she there must have been quite a. <laughs> Quite, quite, why why would you want to start doing that just for the money is that all or, or why would you why would you start you know killing children just I, I think I, I can't relate to that I can't understand no, that. no no none of us can relate to it but I think she was a businesswoman she was very ambitious um she trained to be a nurse and um she was a married woman she had two husbands and she started the baby farming business when she was married for the first time in, in around about 1868 when she started up but after she met a woman uh, a midwife while she was training at Bristol Royal Infirmary she met a midwife called Ellen Dane and she told her about this lucrative business of baby farming so you know Dyer was quite independent that the men in her life don't really feature so she clearly wanted more more from them her first husband was a craftsman so he presumably had a reasonable amount of money but her second husband was a laborer so there wouldn't have been a great deal of money in that household so she was ambitious she was educated you know she came from a respectable working class family herself her father was a master shoemaker um so she'd had you know a reasonably good background some problems in her background in, or some tragedies uh, two two of her sisters died and her mother died of meningitis when Dyer was 11. So she would have had some trauma there. Mm. But apart from that, all her siblings were working. You know, they all had trades. She, she herself started off apprenticed as a, a dressmaker to an aunt, and then she moved into nursing. So she either wanted her independence because, you know, it was very difficult for women to build up their own businesses. I mean, this wasn't obviously be a business of choice, but that was one of the things that gave her freedom, this business financially and in terms of her personal life. She separated from her second husband or he just disappears. And, you know, sometimes I kind of to try and rationalize it. It was for money, I think. Uh, and, and also think about that, you know, at the beginning, she was just allow just allowing them to mm. starve to death, but she was neglecting them, essentially. She wasn't actively, as far as I think, I believe, she wasn't actively violently murdering them. Um, so there was, and that was, you know, that was, there was an element that was quite normal in society at the time. I and mean, it's hard to look back at the 21st century perspective. Mm. I, I feel sometimes it's a bit like the unscrupulous puppy farmers that we get today. You know, the way that people treat animals mm. is very much the way that people people treated children um, you know in in the Victorian period they were expendable um, mm. you know nobody cared who they were they didn't really have identities they didn't mean anything and she really taps into that with this business yeah absolutely um, her 
her daughter and her son-in-law, they were also mm -hmm. kind of involved in the case. And mm -hmm. I mean, if this, this series is called Talks Beyond Time and Place, but it's more about, it's all, always about London beyond time and place. Sure. So they, they lived in, in Wilston in uh, North they London. Did. So maybe you can tell us a bit about what happened there and how they have been involved. In the case. So she, yes, the daughter is a really, a really mysterious character, and there's not enough information about her. But um, she's believed to be Dyer's biological daughter, and her name was Mary Ann, and she married uh, Arthur Ernest Palmer. Now she had grown up um, in Bristol with the baby farming going on, and she came to Reading. They both came to Reading uh, with Amelia Dyer in 1895, but by Christmas. Um, the, the family had sort of started to separate out and um, Mary Ann, she's known as Polly, Polly and Arthur went to live in Willesden and, and, and Dyer and Jane Smith, they moved to Kensington Road. So um, piecing back the story, which they don't find out till later, so this comes quite a bit later once the trial starts to, you know, the, the information, the investigation for the trial starts to happen. What they discover is, is that on the 31st of March, Dyer had travelled to Cheltenham to collect baby Doris Marmon from her mother. Then she'd taken the train all the way to Paddington, where she'd gone to stay in Willesden with Polly and her husband. And so quite late at night, Polly opens the door, um, uh, you know, the front door, and finds Amelia Dyer, her mother, on the doorstep with a carpet bag and a parcel and a baby. And that baby is Doris Marmon, the, the four-month-old child that's found later in the carpet bag. So as Mary, as Polly testifies, she allows her mom in and her mother comes to stay for the evening. And she and the next morning, um, Polly sees the carpet bag um, uh, on the on the, you know, on the sofa and the parcel stuffed under the sofa and no evidence of the baby. But she doesn't seem to question this. Now, the following day on the 1st of April, um, Polly and Arthur and Amelia Dyer travel back to Paddington Station to meet another woman, Amelia Hannah Sargent, under the clock on platform one. So next time you're at Paddington Station and you, the clock is still there, gonna, you know, yeah. at 12 o'clock. I always think of that poor child every time I pull into Paddington. So they met and, and she was um, a woman from Ealing. She was an undertaker's wife and she was taking care of Harry Simmons, who was 13 months old, for his own mother who'd gone abroad as a lady's maid. Um, Amelia, Amelia Sargent gets quite complicated, had six children of her own, and so she could no longer afford to keep Harry, so she answered this advert. So she handed Harry over to Dyer at Paddington Station on the 1st of April. Now they go back to, um, they go back to um, the Wilsden, to the house in Wilsden, and um, that evening um, they go out to Olympia for a stroll, the adults do, and Dyer leaves Harry under a cloth or under a shawl on the sofa. And when they come back, Polly notices that the child hasn't moved and he's 13 months old. So, you know, he's not gonna be, he's gonna be wriggling around or walking even, um, but he hasn't moved, but she doesn't question that. So on the next day, uh, Dyer disappears back to Reading and everything goes with her. So what we assume is, is that not sure about Doris, but certainly Harry Simmons was killed uh, at the property in Wilsdon mm. um, and, and possibly Doris. And it's then that's the last sort of sighting of Dyer before she's arrested. And then she takes the babies back to Reading and, and puts them in the River Thames. So uh, and they don't stay in Wilsdon very long. There's a bit more at best. There's lots of investigations into them and they're often charged with. So um, Arthur Palmer is charged with abandoning a baby in Devonport. And they move around a lot. So they're in Warminster or Devonport, they go to London, uh, they're, they're always moving about. They're charged, uh, both charged as accessories in this case, 
but both of them, um, Arthur is dis is discharged if there's not enough evidence, and and um, Polly does go to go to a court um, here in Reading, but she's later acquitted because there's not enough evidence. They're very shadowy characters, and you never know how much they're involved. They have their own baby farming business, um, and in fact, two years after Dyer's death, they they uh, they're convicted of um, of abandoning a child. Um, who doesn't actually die, but somebody finds a child in a railway carriage and they discover it to be them. And after that, they they, they serve their time. I don't know how, can't remember how much it was, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a couple of years in prison. And after that, they completely disappear without trace. Nobody's been able to find them. So maybe they changed their names or went abroad or something. Yeah. Um, so they're very interesting characters, but very enigmatic. Yeah. Well, wasn't it that uh, when he was discharged of being an, an uh, accomplice of, of Amelia Dyer that he was quite happy and stepped out of the box and of the courtroom and was arrested immediately again yes, because he right. had abandoned abandoned the child um on the that's street. right yeah. yes he was quite um he was quite a showy man you know he, he, he the neighbors in Caversham thought that he was quite wealthy and he used to walk around with a Panama hat and you know he liked it they had expensive tastes him and Polly you know and and he used to he used to be he used to be telling everybody about all the businesses that he was setting up but actually in real life he was a bit of a failure he didn't he didn't manage to stick at anything really mm. uh, yeah so he was very confident yeah um, yeah you in the beginning you already mentioned the some of the uh, policemen in, in Reading some of the investigators mm. and I think the leading investigator was Chief Constable George Toosley, if I pronounce yes. that correctly. So maybe you can you can tell us a bit about um, the police in in Reading in general. I don't think there wasn't there weren't that many policemen there, and and how they then investigated the case after Amelia was uh, was put into to Reading prison. Well, George Tuesley was actually the chief superintendent, so he was in charge of the police in Reading, uh, which wasn't a massive force at the time, and they didn't deal with murder. And uh, there are no records of murders, you know, in the time before that. And in fact, the charge book for the Uh, police the main police station in the weeks leading up to this this case only has two crimes that are described in full and one is the theft of a watch from a gentleman at the railway station and the other was the theft of a, a fat sheep from a from a field so that's the kind of things that mm -hmm. they're dealing with um george chusley had been in charge of the reading police for almost 10 years by this stage and he originally came from norfolk he, he was a police he was a police officer's uh, his, um, child so his father was a chief constable as well so that that was kind of he was you know police from a policing family um he was experienced but you know not in this and 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 he takes charge of the investigation and he appoints detective constable james anderson to investigate who is assisted by a uh, police sergeant uh, harry james so he's a, a uniformed officer <clears throat> there aren't many um that i attract there's some detectives there aren't detectives in reading till the mid 1880s so it's quite a small force mm -hmm. and not necessarily that experienced um but the, and, and and what was difficult as well for these three men and george choosy takes quite a big part in this because he's the one that does all the investigative work and it leads the inquiries and he links up with the parents and he also links with other police officers in other other constabularies like in Bristol but what's, what must have been particularly difficult for these men um, was that they all had children and all quite young so James yeah. Anderson for example he had five boys and his youngest was only two so you can imagine you know how difficult it would have been for all these officers dealing with this but they, they don't call in the Met which is interesting uh, the Metropolitan Police there is some evidence of two Metropolitan police detectives 
um, interviewing Jane Smith, but that, that's very uh, unclear. So it may have even been there were journalists pretending mm -hmm. to be police officers. So it's interesting. I think it's because they didn't realise the scale of what they were dealing with, um, that they didn't call in the Metropolitan Police or Scotland Yard. They didn't call in Scotland Yard, which is interesting. Yeah. Um, but mm -hmm. because I guess they solved it themselves, which is, you yeah. know, it was quite brilliant, really. Really, it really was, yeah. And I think this is uh, something that you, I mean, we can all read that in your book, and I, I'm, I will, uh, I want all of our, li our listeners to to read that <laughs> to find Thank out you. all the details. But um, what I also found interesting, just on a side note, is that when uh, Amelia Dyer was at Reading Prison at the same time, she, she was there at the same time when when as Oscar Wilde. Uh, yes, when, when I know. Was, uh, this time there. I know. Quite, I know. Quite Quite yeah, and the, the, the trial of her daughter Polly was on the same day as um, as um, Waldridge. You know, the um, the the trooper that um, that Oscar Wilde wrote the ballad about. You know, that was on the same day. So it's kind of weird, isn't it, when those things some, suddenly coincide? Absolutely, yeah. So, um, well, yeah, as we know, in the end, Amelia Dyer was sentenced uh, to death. What was she accused of? You know, what what did they? Sentence. So she was charged with the murders of Doris Marmon and Harry Simmons. Yeah, the mm -hmm. two uh, the two babies in the uh, in the carpet bag, and it's very much it's very much the uh, the Doris Marmon case really, which um, which leads to the guilty conviction. And it's quite interesting. And you know, another big question about Amelia Dyer is, you know, was she mad or bad? You know, and and the trial um, is very much an exploration of her mental state. And so they, you know, she, she tried to commit suicide twice in Bristol. So once she'd thrown herself into a deep pond and the other time she tried to slit her throat, but it was a very um, light, light cut. So it wasn't a very serious attempt. And this seemed to be when she was trying to escape the law. So mm -hmm. she often um, had a, had a so-called nervous breakdown, a mental, mental sort of crisis. Uh, and then she'd be taken off to an asylum and then she'd be cured and sent back out again. So it seemed to be a way that she was evading the law. She was also possibly uh, a laudanum addict uh, some evidence to suggest that so much of the trial apart from the witnesses was was various doctors and medical experts who were trying to work out uh, whether she was um insane or not because she pleaded insanity and uh, and she used to you know she talked about hearing hallucinations and voices and she talked about um images of her mother's grave but they they they, they all disagreed so they completely contradicted each other and nobody really could could decide you know exact state of her mental health yeah i think uh what you just when she when she had the two uh, suicides attempt in uh, attempts in in bristol wasn't that when when there were these these parents coming coming after her, trying to find out what happened to their child. So it was always a kind of way of, you know, avoiding him. And then yeah, and that's what seemed to be the case. It was a governess uh, who had given her child. We don't know the name of the governess, sadly, but she'd given her child um, to Amelia Dyer because she'd got pregnant by the son of the household where she worked as a domestic servant. And uh, when the parents of the house or the, the, the man's parents had discovered it, they'd sent him away because they didn't want him to be connected with a servant. And then a, a while later, they got back together and they decided to get married. So it was a kind of sad love story, really. Absolutely. And so they'd gone back to Daya to find their child in Bristol. And she kept sort of trying to put them off the scent and they brought the police back. And every time that they came back, as you quite rightly say, she would have some sort of crisis mm. and, be, and be sent off to the asylum. Um, right. So, um, yeah, in the end, it, it didn't help her. She was uh, executed in uh, Newgate Prison on, on 10th yes. June, right? 10th, 10th of That's June, right. yeah. 1896. Yeah. And yeah. 
as I as I mentioned before, there's this this ghost story uh, about her that that is uh, where where her ghost is seen around the area of of what what is now the old Bailey, where uh, oh, really? previously mm. New, Newgate yeah. Prison stood. So um, I think Newgate seen around was... Reading as well, around the around the paths um, near the river. There's the stories of of ghosts. Yeah, she uh, she must be everywhere. But I think Newgate was demolished in 1902, and and there's this the story. Um, so, so when she was led through Deadman's Walk, they had this walk to to the to the gallows. That, um, yeah. She she passed a young a young warder uh, uh, named Mr. Scott, and then she uh, it's just a story. She it yeah, said yeah. that she gazed at him and and smiled at him in a kind of eerie way and said, "We will meet it meet again one day, sir." <laughs> and uh, then she was executed, and a couple of years later, he was sitting in in the warder's room, and uh, all of a sudden, he had this this strange feeling that he was being watched, and uh, he he remembered these words: "I'll I'll meet you, meet you again someday, sir." And then he turned around and saw her face at the at the window, grinning at him in, in oh, horror. Oh, really? I didn't know and, that story. <laughs> and then then he went out into Deadman's Walk because the window was leading to get Deadman's Walk, and of course, he didn't find anybody there, but. Uh, allegedly her the handkerchief that she had when she when she died he it was lying lying on the on the floor just just oh. before him so kind of an interesting story but i think uh, she she really wasn't that on the day of her execution she, she wouldn't have done that right she was very yeah. <laughs> she wasn't in the mood for something like that I no think. but it's kind of the urban myths isn't it and in fact you know there is a whole myth you know whole mythology around dyer and even at the time you know people in the newspapers i've, I've read it in manchester new contemporary manchester newspapers you know people thought that if a baby had been found you know uh, killed or, or dead which of course lots were as i said earlier they they did attribute it to media mm-hmm. dyer you know at the time you know had she traveled up north you know had she traveled here there and everywhere so there, there is and of course there's a links you know alleged links with Jack the Ripper you know so she keeps coming back in in sort of uh, in popular culture and and here in Reading actually I've talked to lots of people who live here who said that when they were children you know if they misbehaved uh, their parents or their grandparents would say you know if you don't behave yourself old mother dial will come and get you you know so it's interesting isn't it how these characters do pass into sort of myth um absolutely yeah really interesting and but in the end, it's it's a really a really sad story because yes. of all the the victims, the the unnamed victims, of many of which we don't know. The, uh... Yeah, the, the people in Caversham actually, after this horrible thing had taken place, um, on the on the bridge, the Clappers Bridge, which had a wooden handrail, they carved crosses, you know, to remember the children. But of course, the, it's all gone now, and it's been changed. And you know, sadly, there is no memorial mm-hmm. to the babies that actually are perished at her hands in Reading now. I mean, you know, it would be quite nice to have one really. And I've been trying to, as I say, trace them because, you know, otherwise they are just forgotten, aren't they? Which is which is even more tragic, I think. It really is. Yeah. So, um, Angela, what is what is your next project? We've talked a lot. We've talked enough about Emilia Dyer. Let's talk about you again for a bit before we finish. So I'm currently doing a PhD um, in Oxford, uh, Oxford Brooks University, where I'm studying um, the investigative practice of detective police detectives in Victorian cities. So I'm looking at how the Victorian detectives developed their sleuthing skills in Manchester, Liverpool and Birmingham. So I'm just coming towards the end. I'm in the last phase of that. So I haven't been doing a great deal of other things uh, alongside. And then uh, and and 
yeah, but I would like to revisit the baby farming uh, cases again at some point. I have been doing some more work just, you know, casually on uh, on the victims. And it's something I you know, would like to uh, explore more once I've got my once I've finished my PhD. Yeah, that sounds very interesting. Any any other book projects or nothing? Nothing there right now. <laughs> well, I have I have, a, I have one small contribution to book on on hold, but that hasn't been the details of that hasn't been released yet. But um, yeah, I've got loads of ideas. So uh, so uh, I'm trying to balance that with trying to get my PhD finished. But and, and of course, that has given me a whole load of more ideas. So I have various projects, but I haven't taken anything forward. So I hope to submit my thesis, you know, towards the end of this year, or early next year. And after that, I'll call, I'll go back to proper writing. I mean, I just keep my blog going most of the time. Um, and then do, do sort of uh, events, but uh, yeah. I haven't had time to commit not commit fully to a, to a writing project. But I've probably got at least 12 different ideas for new books. So <laughs> watch this space. Yeah. So so much more to come. We can expect much more. Oh, from absolutely. You. <laughs> okay. So thank you very much, uh, Angela, for being my guest for this conversation uh, of about this very sad topic, actually, but interesting nonetheless socially yeah. historically um i wish you all the best with your with Thank your phd you. and all your future projects um this is angela's wonderful book very suspenseful book Thank amelia you. dyer and the baby farm murders of course i'm going to put a link to the book and also to your blog to your website into yeah. the description of the talk Uh, so thank you for joining me. It was great to have you here. And uh, thank you to our viewers, as usual. Please su subscribe to my channel uh, or to my Substack newsletter where you get, can get some exclusive material or support me on Patreon uh, for more exclusive material. You can check that out. Okay, so thank you very much, Angela. Thank you. You're very welcome. <laughs>